0: when you talk about the decision-making in some of these unchartered moments, you just have to figure out how do I adapt to this moment? I can't hang on to whatever it was before. It doesn't matter, it's a new scenario. And that's that's hard for some people.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Decision Education Podcast, where we talk to a range of fascinating experts who share tips on all things related to decision-making. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Sweeney, broadcasting from the Alliance for Decision Education, the national nonprofit committed to ensuring all students are taught the skills of good decision-making because we believe that better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. Imagine what a difference it would make in your life and the lives of those you love, if we were all even a little better at making decisions. This podcast is for you, the adults who are already out in the world, making thousands of decisions every day and who want to get better at it. I hope you find it helpful. Melody Hobson is a nationally recognized voice on financial literacy and the co-CEO and president at Ariel Investments. Outside of Ariel, Melody currently serves as chair of the board of the Starbucks Corporation. Melody is also a director at JPMorgan Chase, and she previously served as chair of the board of DreamWorks Animation until the company's sale. Melody's community outreach includes her role as chair of Afterschool Matters, a Chicago nonprofit that provides programs for teens, and she also serves as a board member of the George Lucas Education Foundation. Melody earned her B.A. from Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of International Relations and Public Policy. In 2015, Time Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world, and Melody was recently announced as the recipient of the 2022 Lincoln Leadership Prize. The prize recognizes outstanding individuals for a lifetime of service and has previously been awarded to U.S. Presidents George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, civil rights activist The Little Rock Nine, and astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Melody, the absolute warmest of welcomes. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for making the time to talk with us today.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: I'm just going to dig right in and start asking questions and Looking forward to the conversation. You're co CEO at Ariel Investments. Can you tell us a little about the focus of your work there and how you started out in this field?
0: Well, let me start off with the focus of our work. So, we are a global value asset manager. And what that means is we invest in public company securities around the globe. In the US, we buy small and medium sized companies that have. strong potential for growth, but are often undervalued or overlooked, widely misunderstood or ignored. And then globally, we buy stocks that also people maybe do not see the value that we see in them, and they can exist anywhere in the world. So we've been doing that for the last 39 years. We turned 39 years old this January, and I've been at the firm, this will be my 31st year, which is nuts. Now, to your point specifically about, which I think is, you know, how did I get started in this field? Clearly, with a 31-year career at one company, I'm highly unusual in my graduating class of 1,100 people. I'm supposedly the only person who's had the same work phone number since I graduated from college. Oh, my gosh. And a lot of this has to do with I fell in love and just discovered the investment business basically by accident in meeting the founder of Ariel, John Rogers. When I was 17 years old and I was bold enough to ask him if I could be a summer intern. I entered at the firm one year and then I went and interned at T. Price, the big investment firm in Baltimore the next year and realized I had found my calling that the idea of investing and saving, which made a lot of sense based upon how I grew up with so much financial insecurity. I was craving those lessons that it really changed my life and I knew it would do it for the rest of my career. So I started as an intern and rose up to become president when I was about 31 years old. And then I became co-CEO of the firm in 2019. And my responsibilities are everything outside of the investment area. I basically run the firm on a day-to-day basis, whereas John Rogers, our founder and my co-CEO, is responsible for the investment strategies that we offer to our clients.
1: Well, I really appreciate that explanation. You kicked off a bunch of questions for me. One is more of a technical one, which is just for uh, all of us. What does it mean that when you say you look for undervalued equities or, or companies, how, how do you know that something's undervalued?
0: Well, they say that value is in the eye of the beholder. And so we have our own definitions of what value is, and they get pretty technical. But the idea that what we're looking for is we're buying things when they're out of favor. When for whatever reason, there's a a cloud over an industry or, or over a company, but we can see past whatever the short term issue is. And because we take a long-term view and have a turtle as a logo and call ourselves the patient investor, that we can see that unrealized value that will come to us down the road. As a result of that, I tell people in really volatile and difficult times, that's when we make the most money. Because basically what we do, we, we shop for years of future returns. So value, for some people, as I said, it can mean very, very different things. We've defined it around what we're looking for in terms of the, what we call the intrinsic worth of a company. What would a rational, reasonable person pay if they were to buy the whole business or if it were broken up into pieces and sold? And on the domestic equity side, where we buy U.S. stocks We're trying to buy stocks that are worth a dollar, but we only want to pay 60 cents for them. So we want to buy them at a 40% discount to what we think they're worth. And on the international and global side, we look at a bunch of valuation metrics that all come together to create a sense of the opportunity that might exist there.
1: I'm struck by the courage that that takes to have a conviction about something so consequential when the rest of the market is telling you you're wrong. And it's striking me that it sounds very similar to a young woman going up and asking to intern for someone, to be courageous enough to, to push. I'm just wondering, are those connected in your mind, the internal fortitude and courage to, to differ from expectations and the ability to see a, a different value in the market and pursue it for the long term, even when everyone else is saying it's not worth that?
0: Absolutely. I think one of the things that makes for really great investing and some of the greatest investors of all time, they have the courage of their convictions. Now, this isn't just digging in on something because you think you're right. These ideas are steeped in research. We have a informed point of view about why we can see and believe things will be different than the rest of the world believes. that takes a lot of courage You know, sometimes we're out there, my visual is that we're dangling from this tree branch by ourselves, but that doesn't make us uncomfortable. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. John Rogers, who's co-CEO, was an only child. And I think that had a lot to do with not getting that stimulus of siblings who kind of beat you down on your ideas and force you at times to conform to a point of view. I think he was freed of that by being the only child and, you know, being told by his mother that you know, whatever he enjoyed or believed or wanted to do, he was in a situation where his mother encouraged him. I'm a de facto only child because my siblings, even though I have five older siblings, they're so much older than me. And they say, when you have more than five years between you, you're de facto an only child. So I think there are parts of that. I also think that, you know, there's a grittiness to us. And I think that grittiness allows us to have that that internal fortitude at times that you need, especially in really, really difficult periods in the stock market.
1: So was it the fact that you had older siblings, that you had some awareness of the kinds of careers that were out there and that led you from international relations over to finance and investing? Or was there something else that let you know that that was a possibility?
0: No, actually, I took the road less taken or less traveled in my family. I'm the only one of my siblings who graduated from college and just had a very, very different childhood and life experience, even though we have the same mother. And I think a lot of it was a function of, you know, I sort of was born different. And I didn't have any knowledge of the investment field until I met John Rogers and became an intern. And that's when I discovered the entire world of finance, which was eye-opening to me. And in many ways, it created a great interest in me because I had longed for financial security for most of my childhood. And so, no, I had no exposure at all, which is also why I think exposure is so important to the extent that you can learn of all the possibilities, all the careers that are out there. I think it gives young people new horizons.
1: Yeah. I I imagine that's you mentioned last time we talked, you have a passion for educating people about How to make better decisions about their finances. I'm assuming that's connected to your own journey. Do you want to tell us a little about Ariel Community Academy and what your interest is there?
0: Sure. We started a school, oh gosh, wow, it might be 25 years old now. It's called Ariel Community Academy. We started before there was charter charter legislation in the state of Illinois. And so we were part of something called the Small School Initiative that the mayor of Chicago, Mayor Richard Daly, had put in place. He gave nine institutions the opportunity to run a school. There were hundreds of applications. We applied and we actually won. The person who was really behind this, along with John Rogers, was someone named Arnie Duncan, oh, whose cool. name means something to you. Arnie worked at Ariel running our foundation, and Arnie ultimately became the Secretary of Education. But he was the one that thought it would be really novel for us to start a school, and more importantly, for our school. To really piggyback off of what made Ariel possible, which was this idea that when John Rogers was a child, his father, who had been a child of the depression, had bought him stocks every birthday and every Christmas instead of toys and created this childhood habit that became an obsession, that became a company. And John clearly grew up being financially literate as a result of that exposure. So we said, what if we could do that in a public school in Chicago, and ultimately, that's what we did. So the Aerial Community Academy has a saving and investment curriculum that starts with every child in first grade. We give every first grade class 20000 real dollars to invest, and the money follows them through their grade school education with the students taking increasing responsibilities for managing the money.
1: That's amazing. And then I was reading a little about that. At the end of their high school experience, it gets split some of the proceeds go back and fund the next first grade classes investment and some goes into college funds for the graduate. Do I have that right?
0: That's exactly right. So the money grows and when they get to eighth grade and they're graduating, they take $20,000 and give it back to the incoming first grade class to make the program Mm self-perpetuating. And then all profits that exist after that, half, They split amongst themselves, and for every child that will put their money in a 529 plan for college or future education, we will match that contribution with $500. And then additionally, the other half of the money, the students have to come together and decide on a philanthropic donation that is related to the school. Our kids, 80-plus percent of our kids receive free or subsidized meals, lunch, and breakfast. And so we're in a disadvantaged part of Chicago, but we want to make sure they see themselves as philanthropists as well, not as just recipients of philanthropy. And so we want to really create, and again, open their minds to the opportunities of what they can be in terms of them being able to support something that they think is important for the school, in addition to benefiting from all of their hard work in terms of having invested the money for most of their, basically their life at that point.
1: Yeah. It really is a fantastic program. I was so excited when I saw it. I also noticed that it's not just investing. There are three other areas in the Futures program that are probably unique. There's an education around personal finance, obviously. Also one around economics generally, and then around entrepreneurship. And I was curious about the entrepreneurship one in particular. I know some other schools do that, but how does that show up?
0: A lot of our work is hands-on, and it's project-based learning. And so there, the, in my other life as, as a part of the George Lucas Educational Foundation, we've done a lot of work around project-based learning and how that actually sticks more for a student than the traditional drill and kill, as they call it. And so in the project-based learning effort, they're given real-life scenarios. And so being an entrepreneur and giving students the opportunity to grow, build, run something, et cetera is something that we find to be life-changing. And so many young people want to chart their own course mm-hmm. and to control their own destiny. And they want to do that as entrepreneurs. And so we're just, again, giving them the tools that they will need should they decide to go down that path. And sometimes the great thing about everything we do from in our stock stock market or financial literacy investing, you know, a market crash. Mm-hmm. That imprints and teaches students that you know, the market can still recover from this. Maybe you had a business that you started and didn't do well. Again, you can you can internalize all of those learnings and then use them for the next time. So that's the goal. It's not as if they're uh, we expect them to come out of that, you know, being the next unicorn in America, but it is to, to get the values and get the know-how and the understanding. And more importantly, to be able to handle the emotional ups and downs of some of these things.
1: It won't surprise you, I think, to know that as soon as I saw that, I was thinking, we have some other organizations that have talked to us about their entrepreneurship programs for kids and that decision-making is just throughout it. I mean, that, that's what's, I think, part of what's intrinsically motivating for the students is that they have real agency. They have an opportunity to try to make sense of something on their own with the help, of course, and then to make a real decision of some kind and repeated decisions of different kinds and get feedback from the world on, yep, that worked or no, that didn't work. I don't know if that's part of what you talk with them about or not. And if it is, I'd love to hear about it.
0: Well, for sure. There's no question about it. There are a lot of decision trees in life in general. And certainly there are some some that are significant in business. The agency that we give our students is not just the agency of the idea and creating. They're using real money. You know, that's one of the things that we think is, you know, so many times it's not real. It's simulated. And so that's part of the exercise for us is you feel very differently when it's real money, you know, as opposed to being something that is on paper or simulated.
1: Yeah. Taleb says, skin in the game. It changes your thinking pretty dramatically. I'm wondering if we can shift for a second. We've talked about some of the challenges you faced during the pandemic with decision making at Aerial Investments. I wonder if you could talk about that for a bit.
0: Sure. I mean, it, it literally, there, that, that subject matter is pretty expansive. So tell me where you want to go. Is it decision-making when the stock market is falling apart and you have a COVID crash in 22 days? Or is it decision-making when it relates to big decisions like how are you going to work from home or when do you return?
1: Yeah. I was thinking about your life a little bit and about some of the experiences you are having that are almost unique you know, being the chair of a Fortune 100 company is a very, very rare opportunity for anyone to live through. Being the co-CEO of a large investment company is a very rare thing. So most of us on on this side of the audio are never going to have that experience. So I think getting a chance to hear what some of the decisions are that you've been working through during the pandemic as the co-CEO of Ariel around what do you do with your workforce? What do you do with the culture? What do you do with trying to balance the human need and the business needs? I think those are the things where you have an experience and an insight that, you know, we're all living different lives. Most of us are not going to live through those decisions in that seat. I'd love to hear like what goes through your mind? How do you how do you approach a decision like that?
0: I think the 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 epic decision that occurred especially early on for everyone be it Starbucks or be it Ariel, was this whole question of, for me, you had to put people first. Mm-hmm. So that decision was, how do you do that? When you had all this unknown, You we didn't know so much. And you know things were playing out in real time. So the decisions that had to be made, for example, to close, or the decisions, we closed the stores at Starbucks. I mean, close them, Then you had to ask yourself questions about how would people sustain themselves? We paid hundreds of thousands of people while we were closed at Starbucks. At Ariel, that was less of an issue because we have a basically a white-collar workforce that could work from home, which then understanding the sheer luxury of that, I mean, and I say that with true sincerity, that once you realized you could actually do it, you know, it, it worked. That we can tech enable all of these people, which is very different than you know handing someone their coffee. I think it gave me a great perspective all around. I wasn't one-sided in my point of view about what it meant to to put people first. I saw in firsthand at Starbucks. So when I'm a chair, specifically a non-executive chair, which is what I am of Starbucks. I really think through big strategic issues at the company. So we're there for feedback, counsel. As chair, you know, people are counting on you. You know, there are 440,000 or so employees that work at Starbucks globally in 83 countries. I I remember getting a call from, we're in a situation where we have to adjust to municipalities and the issues they have in municipalities around rules for Starbucks, which makes it a patchwork quilt. of of rules, regulations, and operations. And I remember we had a situation in a major city where you could only have drop-off and pick-up. And we got really good at that, curbside, drive-through, et cetera. That really became one of the ways that we sustained the company and sustained revenue. But I got a call from the head of a hospital and the head of the hospital said, literally got to me and he said, listen, I need you to understand something. We have no food here, nothing. And you are all we have. I am begging you to open that Starbucks in our lobby. And it's like one of these things you don't even think of. He's like, doctors need it. Nurses, they're working around the clock. Literally, it's like one of the only things they're holding on to, not to mention patients coming to visit, you couldn't really go in to visit people. There's a lot of waiting where you didn't have the opportunity to go into a room. You know, things changed so dramatically then with even visitors or you're having a baby, all those things. Again, something just that specific that you just do not think of. And I called the team and I said, how can we accommodate? We really need to like, and how do we need to think about this in, in similar situations? And we gave them their Starbucks back. We worked it out with the municipality, but it was one of those, like, I'm not asking you, I'm begging you. And I have to tell you, I remember it like it was yesterday. So there were a lot of decisions that had to be made. You know, how do you, then you've got to have, we call our employees at Starbucks partners. You have to ask partners to come into a hospital to work. So, you know, it's like, there's so many things that are like, we care about you too. How do we create a scenario for you where you feel safe? Remember, this is the beginning. No one even knows what it is. So those were some examples of just you know tough choices. And I can't say at Ariel or at Starbucks we made every choice perfectly, but I do think our intent was always people. I really I know that. Trying to understand their safety, their health, their well-being at Ariel or Starbucks. I always pretend I'm sending my child in to work there. He's only eight, but I pretend. You know, if she were 18 years old, what would I want for her?
1: Wow. I mean, that's just, that's an incredible story. And I just imagining the number of places where that was true and the different circumstances that you were dealing with in each one of those.
0: And I didn't, you know, I don't work at Starbucks full-time. I'm chair. You can imagine what the team was dealing with, that leadership team. It was truly, there was no playbook for any of this. There's no playbook for it in Ariel. Now, with a little differently with Ariel, because we've been through rough, rough, rough stock markets before. And as I told our clients at the time, we know trench warfare. We're actually at our best. We know how to be in a bunker. We know how to make investment decisions when it looks like the world is falling apart. We're we're actually, and I say this with the words that I try to use at Ariel, confident humility. We know how to do that. And it doesn't just, nothing goes in a straight line. It is not easy. It takes a lot of conviction. But over time, we've been able to demonstrate time and time again that we know how to react in those circumstances. Warren Buffett has this amazing, simple thought. He says, champions adapt. and That's actually, when you talk about the decision-making in some of these unchartered moments, you just have to figure out how do I adapt to this moment? I can't hang on to whatever it was before, you know, that that it, it doesn't matter. It's a new scenario. And that's, that's hard for some people.
1: It sounds to me like when you think about your values and the decisions that you're making, that you've got multiple stakeholders that you take seriously not just the investors but also the partners at starbucks or the employees at ariel and the members of the community like the hospital when you had community to serve there are some people who think that you should try to line up your values so you figure out what's your one thing you're really trying to do maybe it's you know return on investment for your shareholders. And then take the view and keeping our employees happy helps with that in the long term. So that's why we do it. And there are some people that say, no, no, reject monisms. There's not just one value. You've got several values and you've got several groups of stakeholders that are important. And you actually need to find decisions and options that satisfy those multiple values or those multiple stakeholder needs. It sounds to me like you're saying the latter, but I just want to check that I'm not being presumptuous. Is that Is that right? Or are you more in the camp of, hey, when it all comes down to it, it's just about shareholder value. And that's why we try to keep our partners happy, our community members happy, et cetera.
0: In my mind, it is the latter. The goal is to understand that all of this fits together and you cannot have one without the other. Yeah. So you cannot have strong returns both at a company level like Starbucks or at a portfolio level like Ariel without understanding the people that generate those returns are essential. So therefore those people Every attempt must be made to create an environment where they can excel. Now, what I will say, and I want to make sure that this is very clear, this is a hard task. Mm -hmm. You know, the goal is not to make people happy, is create an environment where they feel that they can thrive and feel, feel fulfilled. It's really hard because different people want different things. But the values, I think, ultimately define the culture. You know, Howard Schultz at Starbucks talked about leading through the lens of humanity. So this idea of creating a place, this third place, we call it at Starbucks, where everyone could feel comfortable and where humanity would really shine. That's different than an aerial, but similar in so many ways, where we focus on patience and focus and independent thinking and teamwork. Yeah. So those are our four pillars, taking that long-term view, being willing to stand out on your own with your ideas, being, you know, it's, we call it focused expertise, going very deep as opposed to being jacks of all trades. And then last but not least, the only way we can win in our mind, together. So we are not about, you know, culture of personality, one man band. I say it, Ariel, no heroes, no martyrs. Both of those will kill you, literally. And so at the end of the day, it is a team effort. And I use all sorts of analogies all the time. Mostly because John Rogers, when I first started working at Ariel, I told people, which they they often find to be funny, he had me read all these books about coaches, great coaches, like Red Auerbach and and John Wooden and all these people to really understand how do you, win Lombardi, one of my favorite books, When Pride Still Mattered, how do you motivate, engage and, and keep teams together so that they can win?
1: I completely agree with you. I'm delighted to have an opportunity for our, our audience to hear you express it it seems to me like anytime you try to build a strength, there's a complementing challenge that can come along with it. So for example, you know, really valuing people and trying to create an environment where they can thrive and contribute and find meaning and all that can sometimes then make it more challenging to give them feedback. And you were on Adam Grant's podcast recently and talking about feedback in the workplace. And I was wondering if you could say, how do you view feedback and what role has it played in your your own decision-making or that you hope it plays in the decision-making of your colleagues and employees?
0: I view feedback as being very critical. Everyone does not like it. My friend Debbie Samoyo is the one who told me feedback is not a right. You're not entitled to it. So whenever you get it, understand that it is a gift. And if you can get a gift, take it. And so at Ariel, we've tried to, to think a lot about feedback, and try to engage in a way to help people understand why it's very valuable to them. And one thing about feedback is it should not be conditional how you receive it. So we say to people, you don't condition feedback based upon do I like the person? Do I respect them? You know, that can't be a part of your thinking. You have to be open to feedback wherever you can get it from whomever you can get it. And then you decide if you agree or not. But if you hear certain kinds of p- feedback that are repeated that is repeated again and again, you should probably listen hard and do some self-reflecting. But I think, think that feedback is, is essential to real growth as a human being. The only problem that I have found is, as I've suggested, everyone doesn't like it. And so the question is, you know, it, it can't be, oh, I didn't like the way she said it or this, that, or the other. It's just, it, it's it's not the way it's supposed to work.
1: Yeah. Have you figured out, how you got to a place where you like it where you actually value it and want it
0: well i won i think i got really comfortable with john rogers always just gave it to me straight between the eye he didn't just he didn't sugarcoat anything with me and i recognized that that came from a place of comfort i always say to people if you give someone feedback and then they like fall apart and you you know you don't want to do it again if you've got to spend 20 minutes picking them up and putting them back together your first thought is like, oh, if I go down this path, you know, I, this is an hour conversation, you know, that kind of thing. And I think we, we, I got rapid fire feedback as a young person at Ariel that made me pretty resilient. And even if I don't agree, I mean, there are times my husband says this, he says, you know, he'll give it to me straight as well. And he's, he says, what I find about you is you will reflect, you know, I'll spend a lot of time in my head thinking about what someone has told me, especially if it's been given to me in a tough love way. And I've had so many examples of it. One of my favorite stories, I was giving a speech somewhere and someone that I wasn't really that happy with was at the speech. And she came up to me and she said, you know, just in the middle of your speech, I want to let you know that I have to leave. I just want you to know so that you don't think that I'm being rude. And this was someone who had just not treated me well, always very short with me, always very difficult. And so when she said, I want you to know I'm not being rude, I'm going to leave, I said, well, why would you be any different than you always are? So I'm so proud of myself with the thing. And I called my husband, we were dating then, and yeah. I'm like, and then she said, and then I said, and then, you know, so he listened to the whole thing and he said, oh, you decided to be small too. <laughs> it was like, oh wow. I yeah. still do chills. Yeah. That's all he said. You decided to be small too. And I just, I was like, I don't want to be small. Yeah, But that's how he had to deliver it to me. Wow. And it was like, it never, like that one stuck.
1: Yeah, that would.
0: But I got that 20 of those. And the thing is, I didn't fight back. I didn't, there was nothing to say. It was like, I decided to be small too. And I was like, yeah, Thanks.
1: If this is too personal, just tell me and I'll move on. But if it's not too personal, how did you get to a, a place in that relationship where it was expected and and okay to give each other challenging feedback?
0: I think it's, you know, a place of great comfort and safety. We both ask for it. You know, my husband is George Lucas. I married his dad. And my joke is always, you know, when we first started dating, I used to joke with him that I alternated between head deflator and gravity boots, and because there were so many people around him were always you know, gaga. So there was there were times I just remember we were having a conversation when it was super funny. I was with a bunch of friends and the stock market came up, and George started talking about something with a lot of you know conviction, yeah, and we're in front of all these people, and I look at him and I'm like, "Wait a minute, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> in front of all these people and he looks at me and he's like no I don't oh, that's great <laughs> and it was one of these like defining moments I was like this is like my actual industry don't ever do that I don't like black thought about movies and and you know the technical aspects of making a movie but because he was him everyone was like leaning in and I'm sure. like wait a minute yeah and it just sort of defined you know we were always just like really direct with each other and I mean there's There are a hundred examples that he has, you know, given me again. I'm. I I think self-awareness is hard sometimes. Yes. Even if you're trying really hard. And I had one year, my goal was to be intellectually honest with myself. And then I realized I just needed help. Yeah. So I just said to some of the people around me, I didn't have to say it to John, but certainly to George, call me out, like help me be a better person. I won't always agree with you. And maybe sometimes I'll get a little annoyed, but I'm just, I, I am asking for this.
1: I'm struck by this theme that I'm hearing throughout your story about valuing your own growth more than your comfort, your short-term comfort. A lot of us discount our long-term well-being. Like we, we don't think about the long-term effects strongly enough of the choices we're making now, but it seems like you somehow flipped over to the side of, no, I'm thinking about the long-term me. I'm trying to become the best version of myself I can. And that means some discomfort in the short-term, including getting feedback.
0: Listen, I am an imperfect person. Again, back to George. I posted a quote he once said to me. He said, Melody, you have to forgive people for being human. Yeah. And I have to forgive myself for being human too. You know, there are things where I get it really, really, really wrong. And I I sometimes almost feel like I'm standing and looking at myself in circumstances and in situ to say, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And that's been helpful for me at times to like rein myself in a little bit. But I need, you know, I need more work in that regard.
1: My my recollection is you have a daughter. Yes. So what are you trying to pass on to her with regard to her personal self-directed growth, her decisions? You know, Any aspect of this that we've been talking about, what are the big things you're wishing for her that you're you're instilling or, or nurturing?
0: The first thing for her is I, I just want her to be kind. And I think that kindness is a very important characteristic. And I think it goes a long way. And I also want her to not be afraid.
1: Ah, uh, yeah.
0: I, I think being brave is something that takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And so I think people grow up being, they they become more and more afraid of the world. And, you know, at times, you can see that with certain people. And I just don't want her to be that. Yeah, Those are the two things I think about a lot. You know, she's smart. She's getting a great education. Like Those aren't the things I worry about.
1: So extending now beyond your, your family, I understand you're involved with After School Matters and the George Lucas Educational Foundation. And I thought you might like to tell us a little about what they do and how interested folks can learn more about them.
0: After School Matters is the largest afterschool program in the United States for teens. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of what, 25,000 opportunities for students in Chicago over the course of a year. We pay students to come to our programs. And have created this great opportunity for them to explore any interest that they have. Mm -hmm. We have over 1,000 programs. So we have everything from, we have an animation studio, we have a NASA space program, we have every kind of arts you could possibly imagine. We have hip hop dance, we have farm to table, we, I mean, you could learn to be a chef. I mean, there's youth, you name it. Students in the Chicago public school system apply, and they do the programs after school in Chicago, all over the city. And so it's been really, really fulfilling. We see these young teens that are that find new loves and new passions through our programs. We had one student come and speak at our board meeting once. He was a young African-American teen, 17 years old, who told us how he discovered glass blowing. And I literally, it was one of those moments, like I was choking back tears and it was the only program we had open. He thought it was a better idea for him to try to make money. These are his own words, the legal way. Mm -hmm. He goes to this glass blowing class, which he had totally discounted. He thought I'd just show up and collect the paycheck. And he said, but I stood there and this teacher made the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And this is a 17 year old black kid telling the story. And he said, all I could think of is I wanted to make something really beautiful for my nephew. Oh, my gosh. Glass blowing.
1: Yeah.
0: So yeah. he makes something for his nephew and he's walking home. And these are his words. He said, I see my boys on the way. I'm walking home. I'm holding this, you know, thing that I've made. Yeah. And I'm for a moment. I'm a, I've am got apprehension. And then, then I show it to them. And they said, how can you get us into the program?
1: Wow. I was like, wow,
0: I was literally, I mean, I, you know, yeah. That that was the whole point. And, you know, you know, you recognize that it keeps kids on on track. We have a much higher graduation rate of students who are in our programs than the overall public school system. It's true enrichment. It's the enrichment that lots of people with money take for granted that they can give to their children. But that are s- scarce opportunities for kids who don't come for money.
1: If, uh, folks are listening and they want to contribute or get involved somehow what would you recommend that they do?
0: So After School Matters is in Chicago, as I said, we not only certainly, we love donations, we have a huge budget. And we've done some, as I said, amazing things. This COVID was particularly challenging because we ended up realizing our our kids, our teens who weren't in school were food food insecure. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up having pickup sites for food, for families, which had never been a part of our remit before that. So we had to expand some of our connections. We had to get all of our teens technologically enabled with iPads, et cetera, because we wanted them to stay connected. And they did. The, The paychecks were important to them as well. So that was something that, you know, if anyone has an interest, After School Matters, you can you can look up afterschoolmatters.org and you'll see it and, and all the wonderful programs we have, but we're only in Chicago. Our goal is to serve every Chicago student that wants to participate right now. We turn away, I don't know, some somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 20, students who ask for opportunities. So that's where we are with that. I think you asked about also the the George Lucas Education Foundation. So a lot of that work, the the big thing that we have is a website called Edutopia. And it's one of the most popular, it's probably in the top two or three in the world, websites for teachers. And it's to help them to be better at their job. And what we do is we go and make movies on schools that work. And we document those, those success stories because often they're lost with a person. And so we want to institutionalize every form of success that we can. And we've chronicled schools all over the country and the world, although primarily a lot of our work has been on the U.S. We have a growing following around the world as well. And it's on everything you can imagine. We did work on schools that teach grit based upon Angela Duckworth's work to, we chronicles very recently, one of the most popular videos was a school that had come up with a room that students go to before school who are on the spectrum to calm them. And it's everything from a part of the room that is dark to a part of the room that is extraordinarily tactile to a swing. I mean, I could go all in literally the teacher made it out of going to, I think, you know, Lowe's, you know, it wasn't something that was really expensive. It wasn't something that was impossible to attain it was just thoughtful finding a space for it and they found when these students came right before school and even spent 20 30 minutes in the environment that was most soothing to them yeah it made their day go much much better in quieting their minds and 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 making them feel more comfortable so that's you know that was a really popular video that was sent out where people said, well, I can do this. That's the whole idea that all of our tips, everything that we are trying to show, they must be practical in their application. No highfalutin, you know, pie in the sky things. Really, if this were you, what would you do? How could you implement something like this?
1: So something that, something Warren Buffett said, you mentioned him earlier, he talked about painting on a large canvas. And that's what he was enjoying at this stage of his life. And it strikes me that you're just painting on a huge canvas, the number of places that you're involved in and how you're bringing your values to show up in all of those different places. For, for folks who are young and just starting out their professional lives, how do you think about expanding the the impact that you're having? How do you How do you get to be in a place where you're getting to see your version of a better world coming to life, which is what it seems like you're trying to do in so many places.
0: When I married George, he told me, don't spit in the ocean. He said, whatever you can do, do it scale. And he gave me just real life examples of that. He said, you can scale change melody. So don't go retail, go wholesale, whatever you approach, think how many people could I affect and go beyond the one to the many. And so that's why something like After School Matters with 25,000 opportunities, where we want to get to, again, every teen that wants that opportunity. There are 100,000 teens in public schools in Chicago, that you can actually see a, a path to that, to delivering that kind of opportunity. I think for me, I've always wanted to be useful in whatever I was doing at work, at home, in any organization that I was a part of. And I can't divorce myself from my own trauma, but the things that happened to me as a child that I'm still trying to overcome and trying to overcome them by channeling the energy into helping other people not have that experience, be it financial illiteracy, be it the enrichment programs that I wanted to do, be it the... The ability to really understand that person who's a barista at Starbucks who wants to go to college. And, and we have a, a program at, that, at Starbucks that I didn't think of, but certainly embraced as a board member. When you, you know, again, going with that idea that you have of what is the role and responsibility of a corporation? Profits, yes. But how can you magnify your effect? So I think my canvas has expanded over time based upon first my interests mm-hmm. and secondly my experiences they're driving where i end up it's overwhelming at times i'll tell you sometimes i bite off way more than i can chew yeah but i feel purposeful so even when i'm really tired and exhausted i feel that that i'm doing the right thing i read this quote this weekend that really stuck with me and it said you may know this it said no matter how smart you are, how much education you have, how much money you have, how many relationships you have, you're only working at 40% of your potential.
1: Oh, no, I haven't heard that one. But and I was like,
0: 40%? Oh, no. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no.
0: It's like you sort of walk away saying, gosh, I could do better.
1: There's another one that comes to my mind a lot. I'm going to get it a little wrong. I think it was Stephen Gillette who said something like, I do not expect to pass this way again therefore any kindness i can show any good deed that i can do let me not defer nor neglect it for i shall not pass this way again it's very similar to what you're describing it's like there's a there's an urgency to now there's a there's a need to do what you can for those who you can to lift them up and make their their lives better
0: but also i just want to this is not a one-sided thing like one of the things i had the opportunity to meet someone who once said to me don't look down on people you help no Right. Most people do that. I was like, first of all, I was like, again, in the spirit of feedback, how should I receive this? What is he trying to teach me? What is he trying to tell me? This is a two-way street. I get a lot out of it. You know, if just in enlightened self-interest, I can I tell you that story about the glass glowing and the 17-year-old black kid in Chicago. Do you know what he did for me that day? You know, I still, that story lives inside of me and in moments of great. Sadness, pain, anxiety, whatever you call it, want to call it, I can draw upon it to remember. You know, melody, stay focused. Something as small as a glass blowing opportunity could change someone's life. And then you feel better about yourself, honestly. So, you know, you can't dismiss the joy you get. This is not someone, I don't see myself as a savior. I don't see myself as, you know, going in. It's like, oh, I'm so awesome. It's like, wow, these people are feeding my soul. They're making me remember who I am, where I come from, why these opportunities I've been given are so such miracles, why I owe society back.
1: I completely agree with you. It's, it almost feels selfish to even mention just how much joy you can get from being able to give or show up for someone.
0: Which I think is totally underrated. You know, it's like, yes. what's the yeah. point then? You yeah. know, my husband, again, he's like, pleasure is fle- fleeting, Melody. It's a moment. Joy is lasting. Children bring joy and they've got some pre- pretty significant pain points along the way. But the halo of that joy is your whole life. You know, that's very different than a good bite of cheesecake. You know, it's like Right. <laughs> it's not the same.
1: No. No. Categorically different. I'm loving this conversation. I you know, I could talk with you all day. So, I'm going to try to close up by asking in your mind, what will look different in society when we succeed in our mission to ensure decision education is part of every middle and high school student's learning experience? What do you what do you imagine will be different in the world?
0: Listen, I dream of a world of true equality, where there's no conditions around what we can achieve or what people think of us. That's what I think happens when when those breakthroughs occur. You know, I always say when I grew up, my mother used to say to me, Melody, you can be or do anything. And I believed her. And I changed it a little bit with Everest, my daughter. And I say, Everest, you can be or do anything. But I want you to believe that is true of anyone and everyone. Nice. That's a very different way of looking at the world. Anyone can be or do anything. And that's when you take off all the shackles. I mean, pun intended there, of what weighs us down around how we exclude and how we, we put parameters around people's success or potential.
1: Yeah. Not to get too poetic, but when you start seeing the whole universe inside the other person, it seems to me that when we start doing that with everybody.
0: Yeah. But the problem is it starts with yourself. You know, you got to get there on your own first.
1: Right. So it's like, it's
0: very hard to see the potential in someone else. If you don't even, if you haven't gotten straight with yourself, which is where, you know, self-esteem and all these things become so important. I agree. And that's where that decision-making in all this comes together there.
1: Yep. So if there was a single tool, a decision-making tool you could pass down to the next generation, is there one that jumps to the foreground for you?
0: I'm going to go with something that is so cliché it's like, bleh. but you know, I think a lot of people second guess themselves or they try to do what people they believe people want or to do things to fit in. Just I I if you could use your internal decision-making guide as your first fallback, I think it would lead to different outcomes.
1: Yeah, I mean, that sounds to me a lot like being true to yourself and thinking about your real values, what do you really want? Melody, I just want to thank you very much for coming on the show. If listeners want to go online and learn more about your work or follow you on social media, where should they go?
0: Well, certainly go to aerialinvestments.com and you can see all the things we do at Ariel. And on social media, I'm just Melody Hobson and all the various places. So take a look there too.
1: So for any books or articles mentioned today, check out the show notes on the Alliance site where you can also find a a transcript of today's conversation, and we'll put a link to Ariel Investments as well so you can find it. Melody, thank, thank you just so much. I really appreciate your time and all you're doing.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: At the Alliance for Decision Education, our mission is to improve lives by empowering students with essential decision skills. We are building a national movement to ensure decision education is part of every student's learning experience. Through this podcast, we are raising awareness about the movement, but we need your help. Please share, tweet, and learn more on our website, alliancefordecisioneducation.org. If there is someone you think would be great for us to interview for a future episode, or if you have a question about decision-making that you'd like us to explore on the podcast, email us at connect at alliancefordecisioneducation.org. Also, ratings on Apple Podcasts are greatly appreciated, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite app so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you, and I hope you join us again soon.